Back in Revelation this morning, we're in section 6 of 8 in the book. This section is titled, The Seven Words of Triumph. Uh, it covers mainly words of triumph, because God has, is, and will always bringing, be bringing His judgment to bear against the supernatural forces of evil in the world. It's a celebration section in the book. We start to get a glimpse of our victory. And last week, we encountered two of these agencies of destruction. The first was a prostitute slash harlot and Babylon. Both seen as the same person in two different guises, representing two things. One, the persecuting structures of this world that are against the church, that want to bring the church down, that ultimately want to persecute God's people because they are against anything that stands for God. That's what Babylon represents, as well as the beast. But the harlot also represents the systems of this world, the fleshly indulgences that we so often just get involved in, the things that tempt us as believers, that tempt us as a church. And then, of course, the beast with all these heads and the different mountains and the different aspects of the beast is the same beast that we saw in the trumpets, the beast that comes out of the water. And that really does deal with the persecuting forces in this world. But that brings us to this morning. I said this last week, but this section is quite tricky to get through because it's no, there aren't real bowls that are being poured out or trumpets that are being sounded. And so we've got to find our way through the different aspects of the vision. Where we were last week is John had been given a picture of these things. He saw them. And then the angel was busy explaining to John what he had seen. We're going to continue with that this morning. We're going to continue with the explanation, which is the second part of this vision. And then we'll probably get to the third and the fourth part too. I do want to say that there's a lot to go through this morning, a lot of scripture, a lot of verses. Uh, normally we don't go through that many verses, but a lot of them are quite self-explanatory. And so we can just go through them as we do. So turn them in your Bibles to Revelation 17. We're going to read from verse 12 onwards. But let's pray before we start reading. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is life, that it brings life to all of us. No matter what we read in it, there's something for us that we need to receive from it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts this morning, that they would be fertile soil. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd quicken these words, that they won't just be words, but they would be life to us, Lord. And where there are areas in our lives, myself included, maybe more so than anyone else, that you would help us to bring correction, change, Lord, and our desires that we'd walk out of this church this morning with a bigger and greater revelation of who you are. And I pray this today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, so first point for us this morning. The nations, the systems of this world, and all of its different forces have never, will never, and can never be our allies. Let's read together verse 12. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. Let me just deal with two things real quick. Ten, the number ten in this text and the word hour, I don't believe are to be, li to be read literally. In other words, I don't believe it's just ten kings, and I'll speak about that shortly. And the hour that's mentioned here is not a literal 60-minute hour. It is a short period of time. We've seen this before in Revelation. It's used to describe a moment in time. But last week where we ended is we looked at these heads. Remember the beast had seven heads with ten horns. And the text told us that the seven heads were seven mountains, but the mountains were also seven kings. And what I mentioned to you last week was that those kings represented nations and civilizations that had either come and gone, were in existence, or one that would come at some point in the future. And so the question is, if the heads and the kings and the mountains represent those civilizations, what do the horns in this text represent? Now, I do want to say that there are many ways, as with the book of Revelations, to interpret this. In fact, there's lots of different thoughts on this, lots of different thoughts on the kings. You might not agree with the way I interpret this, 
but the interpretations do vary from specific people that are going to take power to specific nations that are going to take power to half-breed aliens that are going to come down and take over the world. Uh, and I'm not even joking about that. It's actually quite a compelling argument if you actually listen to the entire thing. But since we don't have a lot of time this morning, I'm going to focus on what I believe the interpretation is for us today. And so I believe the horns, like those heads, also represent kingdoms, nations, and basically rulers. But there is one main exception. You see, this book, as much as it is written to us as the church today, was written to an individual. His name was John, right? John received this revelation. John heard the revelation from the angel. And so we have to look at the original context of the book too. And so the exception is that I believe that these kingdoms that we're about to hear about now are kingdoms that would come in the future from John's perspective. So when John lived 2,000 odd years ago, these kingdoms were not in existence yet. The other exception that I want to say about these kings is since we know that last week the last king or the last sort of nation would rise up towards the end of days, I believe that these 10 nations form a component of that last one. And so they go together. And I think for us to interpret this correctly, we have to go to the book of Daniel because I think it helps us understand a little bit more about these kings. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read a few verses this morning, and I just want to give you the context of where we are in verse 31. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, that, uh, I don't even know, I started my watch. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon has this dream. Now, of course, he's a sneaky king, and so he decides that he wants his dream interpreted. The problem is he doesn't tell anyone what he dreamt. So he calls all the wise people and says, if you truly are wise, you'll tell me both what I dreamt and give me the interpretation. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that for everyone. I would strongly urge you not to do that unless God has really given you that. But this is a big ask, right? Tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what it means. Of course, none of the famous Chaldeans or the philosophers or the wise people of Babylon could do it. But there was one man that could and his name was Daniel. So Daniel is telling the king now what he dreamt. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and that's important, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. This text basically fits into with what we're reading today in the Revelation. Now here's that statue. It's a it's a rendition of it. I'm not sure that's exactly what it looked like. But what Daniel would later on do in his book, or in the book of Daniel, is he'll go on and explain to Nebuchadnezzar what this statue actually means. And what he says to him is that each part of the body represents different ages, different civilizations, different kingdoms that would come to be. It started at the top, right, with Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar himself, the head of gold. It moves down into these different kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians, the Philistines, those nations that had risen up against God's people, the Greek people. And there's five of those nations. Remember the seven heads. Five of them had come and gone, right? And one was. And that's the legs represented by the iron. It's the kingdom of Rome. That's who was in charge when John was there. And the feet, which are made up of feet and ten toes, at least that's how it should normally be. I hope that you have ten toes. Uh, but ten toes represent this amalgamated kingdom, a kingdom that's made up partly of Rome and partly of other things. And what Daniel's communicating to us is that these kingdoms that would ultimately rise up post John's era are going to be kingdoms that will be made up in part of Roman influence. But they're not going to be 100% Rome. They'll be a mishmash of Rome. 
And what's interesting is that these kingdoms will, like Rome, persecute God's people. And we have to understand that, as I said earlier, even though this is a future vision for John, it's speaking of the future, this vision is not future for us today. I say that to you because the Roman Empire fell. Between 378 and 511 BC, the Roman Empire came to its end. And all those tribes in northern Europe that once formed the empire itself started to break up, right? What did they do? They started to become little kingdoms of their own. And so from one big kingdom, they became smaller kingdoms. And those kingdoms ultimately became nations. But those nations, as much as they weren't Rome, were highly influenced by Rome. For a thousand years after the Roman nation or the Roman Empire fell, these nations still spoke Latin as their primary language. Most educated people spoke Latin. In fact, in a lot of university in this world today, they still teach Latin. Don't learn it. It's really not going to help you much. <laughs> these nations relied on Roman technology. They relied on their aqueducts, on their bridges, on their systems that they had created, water wells, to survive and to thrive. And if you go to Europe today, you'll find that some of these countries still use Roman roads. In fact, a lot of roads in Europe are built on top of ancient Roman roads. Every road truly does lead to Rome, and that's a fact, except from America, because you've got to cross the ocean. And while it is true that somewhere in the 16th century, these nations became what we would call westernized, and they started to bring across their own languages, and whether we like this or not, largely because of globalization, the entire world has in some sense become western, we must not mistake that we are largely a Roman society. We live off Roman and Greek philosophy today. We live off Roman rules and systems of government today. We are living in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. We are part of the feet right now of that statue. And all this tells us is that the beast is evident through all of them. Listen to this, 17, chapter 17, verse 13. These are kings, these kings are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. As much as we love to think that we've evolved, that we've somehow, somehow civilized and we're all better now, that the world today is a better place than it was 2,000 years ago, I want to tell you that interwoven in all of these westernized cultures, whether we like to believe this or not, as civilized as they may be or as uncivilized as they may be, is currently and will always be the beast. The beast is evident. He's there all around us, but there is good news. The good news is just like in the book of Daniel, it says that there was a stone that was hewn out that was not made of human hands, and that stone was cast out, and it crumbled or crushed the feet, right? Well, guess what? I believe that that stone is the same rock that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked his disciples a simple question in Matthew 16. He says, who do you say I am? You've heard me say this so many times. You probably know this off by heart. But they say, Lord, some say John, some say Elijah, some say a clever prophet, blah, 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 all of these different things. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, but Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter's, Peter gets an interesting response from Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but this is from my father. Remember the, stock, the stone was not cut from human hands. The revelation that Peter has of who Jesus is, is not from his flesh. It's from the father. And then what does Jesus say? And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, friends. On the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, the fact that he is the Savior and God at the same time that he died for us on the cross is the very rock that will crush that statue's feet. It's not there anymore, but it's going to crush it regardless. The second point, and this leads into it, 
is that we must never forget that there is a war waging right now for the souls of humanity. There is a war that is going on all around us. We might not see it. We might, it might not be evident to us the way we would think of a normal war, but the war is waging. But the good news is this. The Lord is busy raising up an army. Revelation 17 verse 4. They, speaking of the kings, will make war on the Lamb. They're going to make war on Him. And the Lamb will conquer them. For why? He is the Lord of lords and King of kings. There is no king, no statue, nobody, no president, no dictator, nobody in the history of the universe that can stand up to the Lord of lords and to the King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. I don't think anybody in this room denies the fact that Jesus will conquer, right? We all know that. He is going to win, friends. And if you don't know that, surprise, you learned something today in church. Jesus wins the war. But it's more than that, friends. And it's hard to tell in the ESV. But if you read the ASV, which translates the end of this verse in a different way, it says, and they also shall overcome that are with him. Not only does the lamb overcome, friends, those that are called, those that are chosen, and those that are faithful will overcome. And it's critical because what it tells us is that we are an overcoming church. The Matthew 16 church is not a retreating church. It's an advancing church. We live in an age where we've been pushed into a corner, where we're made to feel like we don't have the power. We can't stand up to the systems of this world, friends. We can because Christ in us is bigger than anything in this world. And he's building an army, friends. And he does it in three ways. First of all, it says that they are called. Do you know right now, people across this world are being called. And you know how they're being called? They're being presented the gospel for the very first time. The gospel comes to us. It doesn't come by accident. It's not some fluke of events. It happened to you. It happened to all of us in this room. Some of us heard the gospel because we went to a church. But some of us heard the gospel because we had a friend who loved us enough and said, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the man who went to the cross of Calvary, who died for your sins. Not because you're good or you deserve it or you should be self-righteous or religious, but because he loves you. That's what it means to be called. And I want to say on that note that we have to understand that's why the Great Commission matters. Because for us to build the army, God's given us a mission to do. We've got a mandate. Go tell the world the gospel. And then he says, not only are we called, but we are chosen. You see, sometimes, unfortunately, this is true, that many are called, but few are chosen. Right? Being chosen means that we don't just hear the gospel message. It doesn't just come to us as some wise words or philosophy, but it starts to take root in our heart. It's the parable of the sower, friends. It's that word, that seed that falls onto fertile soil that starts to bury itself, that will yield fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what it means to be chosen. All of us, if you believed in Jesus and you trust him today as your Lord and Savior, have been chosen. Look at the person next to you and tell them they've been chosen. I don't know if you've never... Play those games at school where they ask you to do one of the schoolyard picks, right? Do you know the schoolyard picks? They are terrible. Many people right now are being traumatized again, <laughs> myself included. I wasn't great at every sport, believe it or not. It was always worse when you were picked last. Sometimes they would just say, oh, it's fine, you know, we don't have to use you, right? You can actually just watch. It's fine. No, no, we'll be one less today. It's okay, no problem. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. He calls us. If we respond, he chooses us. And he would choose you if you were the only person in the world. That's how much Jesus loves you. And then he says this. He doesn't just call us. He doesn't just choose us. He says, and they will be faithful. I don't know if that rattles some of you this morning, but it rattles me. You know why? Because I am so faithless. There are times in my life, friends, 
where I would be embarrassed to show you what my prayer closet looks like with me in tears, not believing God for the simplest of promises. I know we don't have that issue in this church because all of you have got supernatural faith. I get it. But pray for me because I'm sometimes faithless. But this text tells me that I'm faithful. I've always wondered, how is it, Lord, that I can become faithful? How is it that I can believe you? How can I stand in the face of the enemy and just shake my fist at him and say, you can come this far but no further because I'm going to push you back? And then I start to think, well, I'm going to have to do that in my own strength. I'm going to have to read my Bible more. I'm going to have to pray more. I'm going to have to become holy. I'm going to have to look at more TV preachers. I'm going to have to listen to all wise words. I'm going to have to read every book on how to, be, how to have faith. But that's not what we do, friends. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16 gives us such a powerful picture of this. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law through faith in Christ. No, not works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. You know, the actual translation in the New King James Version, the original one is the closest. It says, through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. We're not saved by what we do. We're not faithful by what we do. We can't drum up faith inside of us, friends. We are faithful because of Christ's faithfulness. Paul says it this way in Romans, in, one, in verse, chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Whose faith is it, whose faith is it that we start with? We start with Jesus' faith. He's the one that causes us to respond to the gospel in faith. He's the one that causes us to persist in faith. And he's the one that causes us to triumph over the beast in faith. It's not about what we do. It's Christ in me, friends. And I want to free you this morning because when that moment comes, you will be faithful, not faithless. The third point for us this morning is that the world has sold itself to the devil thinking that it's their friend, but he's not the friend. I don't even know if these points are even here on the screen, I mean. Verse 15, and the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are people and multitudes and nations and languages. Last week I said this to you, that when we were first presented with the prostitute in Revelations, it says that she's seated on many waters. That was a different part of this vision. In that part, what I believe the interpretation is trying to get us at is to understand that cities and civilizations are man's attempt to try and reach godlike statuses of their own, right? It's a representation of man's own ability to rely on himself. But the text here in this particular part of it is a little bit different. Because now what the angel is saying is that this doesn't just represent the cities that rivers are next to. It actually represents the people. It represents the individuals that make up the city. And there's bad news because listen to this in verse 16. And the ten horns, the kings that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. Think of the context. They will hate the people. They will make them desolate and naked and devour their flesh. I'm using my own translation here. And burn her up with fire. You see, the sad truth is people have been selling themselves to the devil all this time, but they don't realize that the devil is about to turn on them. And that's the fact with wickedness, right? Wickedness always causes us to turn on each other. You can't ever find two united wicked people because if they're wicked, one's always trying to get the better hand over the other one, right? And what we're seeing here play out is the enemy wants to destroy the people, the kings of this world, those that rule and reign, that have power, that have influence, that have authority, only want one thing from people, and that is what can you give me? What can I get from you? How much can I use you? How, can, how much can I take from you in order to make me more wealthy, more powerful, and more strong? 
We come from a continent, some of us in this room, Catherine, myself, a few others that are from South Africa, that is littered with examples of this. You can actually see it play out across the world. Think about how totalitarian regimes come into power. How do they come into power? They promise people everything, right? Less tax, peace, security, unity. They promise you whatever you want to get. There'll be no more wars. There'll be no more fightings. We won't be killing people on the streets anymore. If you vote me into power, all of these things will come. We'll give you better infrastructure, not worse infrastructure. But what ends up happening in every single circumstance, in every single one of those cases, it evaporates into thin air. Why? Because the beast's intention has never been to look out for the interests of people. His intention has always been to use people like a commodity until they can be exploited, and then he gets rid of them. And there's a world right now that's being deceived by the beast. And I just want to say on that note, and I've said this before, but I want to reiterate it because I want us to be ready for this, friends. If we think of unity as a cause in the world, unity that you know, the, the global you know, organizations like the United Nations right, are trying to push, or social justice initiatives that get sent out through policy and through legislation, I want to tell you there is no hope of those things that they will ever work, friends. They cannot work. They won't work because they're not driven through the kingdom. There is only one way to true reconciliation in this world. There's only one way to unity in this world, and that is the kingdom of God. His name is Jesus. You want to find unity? You want to bring the divides between society together? It's not a system. It's not a policy. It's not a legislation. It's not a social media platform. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is what unites us. He ties us together. And so if we want to see the world healed, let's take Jesus to the world. Verse 17. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purposes, being fueled of one mind and handling, handing over their power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. This is one of those uh, passages in the Bible, or at least two passages that you want to sort of redact. Because what it says here and I'm sorry to say this, is that God allows wickedness to align until his purposes are complete. He has allowed the beast and these kings to join forces, to destroy people, to bring his plans to bear. Now we might think that's crazy unfair. And why would a loving God do that to anyone? I don't have the answers to those questions in case you're wondering. But what I do know is that God's plans and purposes will always come to bear. What we're seeing play out in the world right now are the, are the death throes of a dying world. And what it's leading us into is the new heaven and the new earth, a place where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering. What I do know at the end is we will never question God's justice. We will never question God's righteousness. We will never say, Lord, how could you allow this to happen? And unfortunately for us as the church, what we have to understand is when the world suffers, we're going to suffer alongside them. And so I'm not promising you an easy road. I'm not saying that we're exempt. We're not the target of God's wrath. We're not the object of his wrath. But when the world suffers, we suffer alongside them. But this is a good thing in the sense it's bringing the world to its place where it will finally have peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we move on to the third aspect of the vision. And so the first part was about seeing these characters, these agencies of destruction. The second part was about explaining them. This third part, and it's really short, is about Babylon and how it's ultimately going to fall. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And so this is a different angel now, a mighty angel, a powerful angel. He's, he's got so much power, the world is filled with his glory. 
Verse 2, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every un unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. What the angel is singing is a song of triumph. He's explaining why Babylon is falling, what she's allowed herself to become. But these songs can be read about throughout the Old Testament. I can't read them today because we don't have enough time, but you can read them in Isaiah 13 and chapter 34 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Zephaniah chapter 2. And all of those are songs about the destruction of ancient Babylon, about what happened to Babylon, about how the city that everyone thought could never fall ultimately fell. And what it's communicating, communicating to us this morning is just like ancient Babylon was destroyed, just like ancient Rome was destroyed, just like ancient Persia was destroyed, just like Greece was destroyed, just like all of these armies that set themselves up against God and say we're unstoppable and unbeatable, all of these nations were destroyed. It tells us today that any future Babylon, whether it's here now or it's going to come, will also be destroyed. It's a reminder to us that Babylon is not about geography. It's not about a particular time. It represents every nation, every civilization in the world, past, present, and future, that has opposed God in the way it behaves because it has not made the God of the Bible its Lord and its Savior. Those nations will be defeated. We then move into the fourth part of the vision. First part, seeing, then explaining. Babylon is fallen. And now is the reminder to us as the church, God is speaking to us. And he wants us to know that she needs to be avoided at all costs. Friends, we were called out of Babylon, not to go into Babylon. Verse 4 of Revelation 18, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Did you notice that the command here to the people in Babylon is to the wicked? to the unrighteous, to the self-righteous, to the sinners. No, it isn't. Don't look at me so seriously. The call here is not to wicked people. It's not to those that have followed Babylon because that's what they do. It's not to those that have rejected God. It says, come out of her, my people. The people that are being called out of Babylon, friends, is the church. The church is being called out of Babylon. It's a church that looks no different to Babylon, friends. It's a church that has allowed itself to become Babylon in some senses of the word. In Leonard, in Leonard Ravenhill's words, it's the church that's more fashion than passion, more pathetic than prophetic, more superficial than superhuman or supernatural. It's a church that's more interested in entertainment than it is in encounters, right? It's a church that, 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 that's more interested in growing than it is in sending people out into the world. And the point that's being made is that it's entirely possible for us this morning to be saved, to have been sent the gospel, to have received it, to have been chosen, to allow his faith to fuel us, and it's possible at the same time to be caught up with the sins of Babylon. Do you know that? It's possible to do both, friends. I said this last week, we as the church cannot be deceived by Babylon, but we sure can be distracted by her. The challenge, though, when I read this text, is that when her plagues come, we suffer with her plagues. We do it every time as individuals when we trust the systems, the systems of this world over God's word, when we seek her pleasures instead of our promises, and we do it when we heap our treasures on this earth instead of our treasures in heaven, friends. But it's not about your salvation. 
If you've been caught up in the world and the world has enticed you and you've been tempted by it and maybe you're playing some games of the world that you shouldn't play this morning, I know that at times in my life I've done exactly the same. Paul wants to tell us what happens. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see, what we're talking about here is that our inheritance in the kingdom is at stake when we mess around with the things of Babylon. When the church becomes Babylon, it loses its inheritance. It loses its ability to influence the world the way God intended it to influence. And therefore, it, it lowers its ability to, to earn an inheritance in heaven. Paul's context there in that verse is he's saying that when we build our lives, do we build it on the correct foundation? Do we build it on, the, on, on gold, stuff that, that is impervious to fire, things that will stand up at the end? Or are we building our lives on straw, wood, hay, and stubble? Because if you are, friends, it will be burned up in the end. You'll still get to heaven, but you're going to smell like you've been burnt. But I want to make it clear. Being separated from the world, friends, does not mean that we are superior to the world. It doesn't mean that we need to become self-righteous. It doesn't mean that we need to withdraw from the world and go buy a bunker, build a bunker, dig a ditch, live in it, and never speak to anyone in the world because they might get their sickness on us, which is called sin. That's not what the text is telling us. It simply means that for us to experience the rich and deep promises that God has for us, we are a people who live for eternity. We are a people who don't think about tomorrow's return on investment. We think about the eternal return on investment. Or as Tozer put it, the purpose of good works isn't to change us or to save us. It's the demonstration of the change within us. Our job is to demonstrate the change that God has done in us to a world that desperately needs to see it. Because you know what? People respond to examples, friends. And so don't go out there and start judging and condemning and throwing people under the bus and telling them that they're the worst people in the history of the world and what have they done. Go there and love them the same way Jesus loved you when he found you in the ditch that you were in. Or I was in. Verse 5. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. Two things are happening in these verses. The first thing that's been communicating to us is that all of Babylon's sins have been heaped up. In other words, God's been keeping score. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, but it's very easy these days to go look around the world and think of the depravity that we see in it and then say to God, Lord, when will you respond? When are you going to act? Remember the blood of the martyrs crying out to God the Father, saying, when will you bring vindication? He said, it's not time yet. There is an appointed time, friends. It seems to tell me this text that there is an appointed time for the conclusion of Babylon past, present, and future. And maybe it's not today. Maybe it's not tomorrow. But don't ever mistake God's timing for his ignorance, friends. He knows exactly what's going on in this world. He is not surprised. He is not shocked. And he's keeping score. The second thing that we see in this verse, and this is a spiritual principle that we've all come to know about. Normally, when we read about spiritual principles, like what you sow, you reap, or the measure by which you give, you will get, Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, we seem to think that the same amount of effort and energy we put into something is what will be returned to us. If it's good, it'll come back good. If it's bad, it'll come back bad. Well, what we know in Babylon is she doesn't get the same principle we get. She gets double back. And so God's judgment will be severe when he judges Babylon, far worse than we could ever imagine, friends. Verse 7, And she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. It's reminding us of Babylon's major vices, friends. The love of luxury, the love of self, the love of pleasure. 
But one of the biggest vices is arrogance. Babylon thinks it'll never fall. The systems of this world think that they'll never fall. In the seven bowls, we heard about how at the end of, end of days, God will destroy the mountains and the islands. Those untouchable places, those things that we think today can never be destroyed, the mountains of abortion, the mountains of addiction, the mountains of adultery, whatever those things are, and we think to ourselves as a church, how can we ever even make a dent in those things? Guess what? God will destroy those things. The islands that we can't reach, the sins that are unreachable, the people that are unreachable, the people that are untouchable, guess what, friends? God will bring judgment on them too. There is no one that will escape the fury of God. In fact, I think this past week just showed us how fragile Babylon truly is. We lose internet for three days. We lose power for three days. All of a sudden, people start stressing, right? Babylon is held together like a, like, like a house of cards, friends. It's, it's so real. You take those three days without power, turn that into three months. Let me tell you what you're going to see on the streets of Austin is something very different. Turn that into three years. Think of every worst apocalyptic movie you've ever watched in your life. I can't say the names because then you'll judge me about what I watch on TV. But that's what it'll be like, friends. Babylon is not as strong as she makes herself out to be. It takes one tiny little thing and the house of God starts to tumble. Can you imagine what will happen when the wrath of God is poured out against her? Verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, and death, mourning, and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Last point for us this morning is when Babylon falls, all the people that have placed their trust in her will cry and weep and lament. God's going to move quickly. And when he does, everyone in positions of power, influence, and authority, the kings of this world who did not bend their knee to Christ, will watch everything that they place so much trust in crumble around them. Here's an illustration for us as the church, because I know we like to think of that. Yes, these people are going to get what they deserve. But think how often we place trust in the things of Babylon. And maybe it's not the sins and the temptations in the way that we would think of them. But think how much trust we as a church, as people, as individuals, place in the financial systems of this world. If we live for money, there is an inescapable truth that in the end of days, money will be no more. It will be gone. If people live for politics their entire life, one day politics will not exist anymore, friends. It's going to be gone. The point I'm making is that we as a church are being encouraged today more than ever not to disregard the things. We live in the world. We work with the systems of this world, but we are not of the world, friends. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our mind is on Christ. Our trust is in Him. Our faithfulness is built by Him, and therefore we will be faithful to Him. We are not worried when the things of the earth start shaking. And believe me when I say this, God has been shaking His church in this process too. The church is not going to miss the shaking when God starts to crumble all of the things he starts to shake us up to see what's real and what's not he tests us as much as he's going to test the world and I want to make sure that our hope and our trust is in him in fact the picture that's used here which is pretty interesting is that when Bob Bab Babylon when Babylon goes all that's left is the smoke of the judgment that God poured out can you imagine that not even a heap of ruins, just smoke, forever and ever ascending, 
saying, there it is. There's that great city that you once placed all your trust in. It's gone. But here's the deal. It's not just the kings of the world that are going to be judged. It's not just those in power. It's not the evil people in the world. Every single human being will be judged. And here's verse 11. And I'm talking about people that did not trust in Jesus. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. No more trade. No more cargoes of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth. All kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. No more Walmart, no more Target, no cinnamon, no spice, no all things nice, no incense, no more, no myrrh, no frankincense, no more essential oils, no wine, no oil, no fine flour, no wheat, no cattle, no sheep, no horses and chariots and slaves that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul long for has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Why? Because in the new heaven, we have a banquet with our king that lasts forever. And let me tell you, the beef in heaven, I know, is going to be better than the beef on earth. The merchants of these ways who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear, and of, in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters, it's not just the land, and the seafarermen, sailors, and all those who trade, whose trade is on the sea, stood far off. And they cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Every human being on the face of this earth, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a stockbroker, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a butcher, a baker, or a carpentry maker, or what do you call a shoemaker? I don't know. Candle maker. Butcher, butcher, I don't know. Candle maker. All of those people. Every single person. doesn't matter what you do. How noble the position may be. Will realize that everything that they've ever placed their trust in has been taken away. The same Babylon that was once admired for so long. The same Babylon which seemed so permanent. The same Babylon which seemed so wonderful. The same Babylon that seemed so everlasting. Will be defeated. It happened to Rome. It happened to ancient Babylon. And make no mistake, every other Babylon that sets itself up in this world will be just as doomed. I don't know how you actually close a message like this, so I thought I'd tell you a story. You see, these are signs of the times. But let me tell you about a middle-aged Christian man. One day he was standing and he was struggling and reeling almost under the physical blow of the news that signified an end of the era, an era of stability, one that lasted his entire life. This is a true story, by the way. Every structure surrounding him from childhood was about to be removed. Many factors contributed to the crisis. The corruption in society, the corruption in government, failing infrastructure, political collapse, a collapse in morals, and soaring inflation. In the face of all of that, it seemed like everything he had ever known was about to dissolve. In fact, many people who lived with this middle-aged man believed that the end had come. Now, you're probably thinking I'm talking about someone that lives in our age, right? I mean, we could look at our world and think, well, that sounds eerily familiar to what we live in today. In some countries, it's even worse. But the point is this. I'm talking about a man that didn't live in our generation. In fact, he never lived in the five generations that exist on this earth today. 
This man, his name was St. Augustine. He was born November 13th in 354 AD. And it was Augustine at 56 years old who stood in Carthage and he heard the news that Alaric, the leader of the barbarian Visigoths, had done the unthinkable and the impossible. He had finally sacked Rome. And it was in that moment that Augustine had his own personal revelation. And he wrote this. He said, there will be an end to every earthly kingdom. You are surprised that the world is losing its grip and full of pressing tribulations. Do not hold on to the old man, the world. Do not refuse to regain your youth in Christ who says to you, the world is passing away. The world is short of breath. Do not fear. The youth shall be renewed as an eagle. You see, Rome, Augustine understood, was not to be the focus of the Christian. He knew our gaze is on another city. That revelation caused Augustine to give the last 17 years of his life to examining the profound question of the relationship between earthly cities like Rome, like Austin, like Johannesburg, like Tegucigalpa. He didn't know any of those, but I'm just putting them in there. The cities that were destroyed and ultimately the real city, the city of God, which continues forever. He wrote a book or a work called La Civitate Deo, which means the kingdom of God. And it became a reference point, a source of inspiration and hope for Christians living in a changing world. I'm saying that to you this morning because it should be our inspiration too. Because guess what, friends? We do not belong to Babylon. Our world is a different world. You see, when we look around us, the signs of atrophy are all there. The world is literally decaying right before our eyes. But we, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Matthew 16 church, will not succumb to the deadly kiss of the harlot, friends. Instead, we will look for another way of life. And we will look to a city whose architect and whose foundation is God. That's the call for Hope Rock Church. That's what we are mandated to do. And we are mandated to go and tell the world out there that there is a city that they can trust in. A city where they can find peace, joy, love, all the things that God has promised us. And the invitation is not for the select few. It's for everyone who God calls, who he chooses, and who he fills with faith. Verse 20 of Revelation ends this section. It says, Rejoice over her. Rejoice over fallen Babylon, church. Do not fear. Do not be sad. Do not be brokenhearted. O heaven and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. The day of our vindication will come, friends. Augustine thought it was happening in his time. You might be thinking it's going to happen in your time. It's not up to us to determine when it does happen. Know this, the Father knows the day and the hour. But just live today as if it was the last. And let's go preach the gospel. Amen. Let's worship our King. The band can come up and you can sing. I want to close in prayer. I was so confused. I never even called the band up. Lord, we thank you for this word. It's not an easy word to hear. I pray that you would take all these difficult things and make sense of them in our minds. Help us to know that the city that we live for and we live in, even though we're here on this earth, is actually the kingdom of God. It's far bigger, far greater, far more eternal. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us an eternal mindset. When we've allowed the world to consume our thoughts, the things of the world to consume our thoughts, the temptations of this world to consume our thoughts, I pray that you would release us from that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, fill us with your faithfulness today. Help us to be faithful stewards of what you've deposited in us and help us to reach the city that you've called us to reach. And I pray this today in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship our King.